I remember the phone call. My co-founder calls me up. He's like, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what? We just helped a law enforcement agency issue an arrest warrant for a sexual predator. And I just, I almost bust out in tears because like, it's like, you're kidding me, right? Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. I'm old enough to remember when RoboCop first hit theaters in 1987. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You you better back up, pal! Your move, creep. I was totally captivated by the idea of a cyborg policeman, half man, half robot, who had the ability to take down any criminal and keep people safe. In the 80s, stories about robots replacing policemen were the stuff of science fiction. Not in my wildest dreams that I think I would live in an era where science fiction became reality. And then I discovered the robotics company, Nightscope. Hi, I'm Ed McNamara, and you're listening to the latest episode of Innovation Heroes. Today, I'm speaking with the chairman and CEO of Nightscope, William Santana Lee, but he goes by Bill. As a leader in autonomous security technology, Nightscope's robots are designed to enhance public safety from school campuses to entertainment venues, providing 24 by seven security, 365 days of the year. Bill's here to talk about how this technology is disrupting the security industry, why robots are meant to improve, not replace human law enforcement, and what he's learned on the road to making America the safest country in the world. Bill, welcome to Innovation Heroes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having us. Greetings from Silicon Valley. And greetings from New Jersey. Jersey. All right. (laughs) Just Jersey. Yeah. Exit 10, 287. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur, being an executive at Ford Motor to now developing crime-fighting robots? Uh, sure. It's been a really straightforward, simple, uh, linear progression. <laughs> Nothing went wrong. Everything went according to plan, just like every other entrepreneur. Just like you drew it up. Exactly. Just exactly like the PowerPoint is exactly what happened. It was incredible. <laughs> uh, by way of background, uh, I'm an ex-automotive executive. I spent a good amount of time in, in Detroit and and elsewhere, designing, developing, strategizing, building vehicles. And kind of fast forward to Nightscope. The company's just over nine years old. We have this crazy mission to see if we can make the United States of America the safest country in the world, uh, which sounds a little bit outrageous. But uh, I was born in New York City. Someone hit my town on 9-11. I'm still profoundly pissed off about it. So the rest of my life, I'm dedicating to better securing our country uh, already put in nearly a decade on the effort and at Nightscope and more than willing to spend another two or three ensuring we get to the the mission completed. We build autonomous security robots. Uh, This is a really unique combination of four really hard things combined into one really hard thing, which would be autonomous self-driving technology, like a self-driving car, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles that we took put into giving officers and guards really smart eyes and ears for them to do their jobs much more effectively. And for anyone unfamiliar with this technology, you know what defines autonomous security capabilities, and how is Nightscope using this technology? Uh, so, depending on who you believe, I'm sure my numbers might be a little bit dated, but over a hundred billion dollars been as has been invested in self-driving autonomous whatever. Probably 200 companies working on it. I believe they're, the collective revenue of those 200 companies are nearly zero, if not zero. And it's basically complete autonomy, meaning level five, hands off, no one remote controlling it, 
operating 24-7 across an entire country. I think we're probably the only company in the world doing that at some reasonable scale, both indoors and outdoors. Um, and I think that speaks to how difficult it is. If no, you know, $100 billion goes into the sector and nobody shipped anything, that probably maybe it's hard. Right. And that, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, not remote control, level five, if you want to put it in automotive terms, complete hands-off patrolling and deterring uh, negative behavior. So can you give me a breakdown of how the autonomous security robots work and how they can be implemented to uh, enhance safety? Sure. We work for Big Brother and what we, you know, take our orders from Big Brother and just try to make sure that the robots are here to kill everyone and take everyone's job is, oh, sorry, <laughs> wrong talking point. Um, the, the technology, I think you'd want to kind of cut it into two pieces. Uh, one would be the navigation portion. Um, it's analogous or very similar to a self-driving car. So we use uh, LiDAR, sonar, proximity sensors, accelerometers, and a bunch of crazy software for the machine to basically dynamically create its own map, find itself in that map, and then navigate without you know hitting anyone or anything consistently on its own. This is not an automated guided vehicle at a manufacturing plant. And then the second part is the machines generate over 90 terabytes of data a year that no human is going to be able to process. And we put that in a digestible format on a user interface that we call the KSOC or the Nightscope Security Operations Center, where our clients uh, can uh, interact with the machines, uh, view live data. Uh, so crude example would be, let's say one of our clients, I don't know, fired someone or expelled a, a student or something like that. They're worried the person's going to come back. You can, uh, with a combination of machines, upload the facial profile of the person, uh, the license plate or plates associated with the person, and any mobile device associated with that person. And then the machines are literally on the lookout for uh, those detections. And that gives an officer a guard, eyes, ears, and voice on the ground in multiple locations at the same time. I appreciate the 1984 reference and the complete lack of double speak in your answer there. That was, uh, was actually very, very well done. Um, 90 terabytes of data, as you, as you mentioned. So, you know, for some, we have a lot of customers who run data centers and run cloud and run both, as I'm sure you you well know. So who's actually, um, you know, storing all of, all of that data and how is it accessed? All of that data, so I, sometimes I spend too much time with lawyers, all of that data is problematic in your question. So not all data is the same. Right. So some of the data for, let's say, navigation stuff, like we're not keeping all the laser scans for you know days on end. So those get wiped as, as we run out of space. Uh, there's data that resides on the machine for 15 or 30 days, depending on what the client might want. And then that's accessible by someone using the KSOC. And then let's say, you know, you, Ed, were the troublemaker that they're keeping an eye on and uh, show up on site and they put you on the watch list, then minus uh, six minutes and plus six minutes of the time that you were there, that gets uh, sent up to the cloud. So obviously we're not going to stream 90 terabytes of data up through a 5G uh, cellular network and sit around waiting for the bill to show up. Right. So it's um, it depends on the data, on kind of what you, where you store it and how you want to use it. And oh, by the way, uh, one contractual thing that a lot of people assert, and maybe watching too much stuff from Hollywood, like we're we're not <laughs> keeping all the data and uh, deciding to go monetize it somewhere else, like legally the way we set this up to avoid that conversation 
is any of the security data is legally owned by the client, not by us. Mm-hmm. And all the machine data, you know, battery cell, temperatures and that sort of thing, that is owned by us. From time to time, you know, most of the times the clients are fine for us to use their data to train our algorithms to improve, but the data is, is owned by the client. So the on-site hardware, the software, the storage, maintenance, I'm assuming this is all included as part of, of the contract. So yeah, this is a subscription service uh, for hardware, software, decals, docking stations, telecom, maintenance service, it's everything, anything goes wrong, it's one throat to choke. It's a machine as a service business model. We charge anywhere from you know, seven bucks down to maybe 75 cents an hour uh, for us to to manage all this on behalf of our clients. $7 an hour as opposed to, you know, the human counterpart, which could cost, I don't know how much. Ah, you used the word counterpart. So <laughs> um, that would imply possibly that you would attribute a one for one there. And I can assure you that there's no human that can remember everything perfectly, not be texting, not be sleeping and not have to take breaks and the like, uh, and we'll show up for work. So I think indirect or, you know, I guess a primary or secondary, depending on the location, could be a human guard and an off-duty law enforcement officer armed with the weapon is, you know, varies widely across the country, but typically it's maybe 85 bucks an hour. An unarmed guard, depending on what you want him or her to do is $15 to $35 an hour. And mind you, if you need to run 24-7, you actually need four humans. Uh, you can't triple shift a human. So, you know, the math gets kind of really interesting for uh, locations that need to run 24-7. And in terms of those locations, can you give us some real-life examples or real-life use cases for, for these robots? Sure. We're in a number of verticals. It could be a commercial real estate, um, a lot of hospitals, a lot of casinos manufacturing plants, logistics facilities, basically anywhere indoors or outdoors, you might see an officer guard patrolling, primarily outdoors where the actual crime occurs is an opportunity for night scope. And in some cases, it's they don't have enough guards or officers to cover a location. So, you know, there's a police department that didn't have an extra couple officers times four to patrol a park. So we patrol the park on their behalf and 911 dispatch can remotely monitor the location, hopefully de-escalate some situations before having to have armed officers show up on the scene in uniform. And, you know, it's the technology is actually effective. You know, when we started the company at they, you know, most of the people here in Silicon Valley, like told us, you know, the following, Hey, Bill, you're out of your mind. Uh, this will <laughs> never work. It's uh, hardware and software too complicated. You should pick one. And physical security is not an investment thesis. You need to go away. And so like any good entrepreneur, we ignored everybody and just did what we said we're going to go do. And, you know, the probability of founding a company, raising the capital, growing it, and then listing it on on NASDAQ, Joe. So we'd probably, we listed the company on NASDAQ under the ticker symbol KSCP um, back in January. And we had raised, uh, I think, north of $120 million from 35,000 investors. Um, so there's a nice, rather large cross section of the U.S. that not only believes in the technology, they know the market for crime will never collapse and know that the technology works. And if uh, you need any evidence of it working or not, just go to nightscope.com slash crime and you can see a nice long list 
of what all these machines have been doing in a positive, uh, working in a positive way uh, to help society. Those are some impressive numbers there, um, especially from the from the business aspect of it. But you know, what are some of the the challenges that you've experienced along the way? Whenever you, know, you have, <laughs> come on, Ed, are you seriously? So many naysayers, right? Like, <laughs> You're going to ask me this question? <laughs> well, I, you know, as a child of the '80s, I remember the prototypes in RoboCop, which I'm sure I'm not the first person to make that uh, that reference. Right? No, never heard of it. <laughs> Give me, give me one that, that that just stands out to you when you think, man, that was a, an inflection point that we really needed to get past, knowing that we have a pretty technical audience here. I guess anything that you uh, let me put, compare this to my experience in Detroit. So, you want to pump out a new vehicle, you know, plus or minus some economics, you know, one and a half billion to two billion dollars to get out the door, maybe four hundred teammates, four hundred prototypes in four years. I don't know why the number four is tied to all that. Um, and you ship quote unquote one skew and you're quote unquote done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, we kind of do the opposite uh, because this is extremely difficult. Uh, there is not a test track to go put this on. Like we don't have a hundred years worth of NVH or, you know, EMC testing and all that good stuff uh, ready to go. Um, you kind of need to put this in the field. And now we've operated over 1.7 million hours across the country, you know, through six winters and six summers, and we kind of learned a thing or two. And to your question, I think every meeting that we had, every discussion we had, every hallway chat, um, we had a bunch of issues that we were scared of. Like the first time we ever put one in the real world was maybe, oh, for the Star Wars fans, we've been May the 4th, uh, 2015. So may the force be with you. And, um, Everything that we were worried about, none of it went wrong. Uh, all the stuff that wasn't on the list is what went wrong. Like, um, I don't know. Do you realize that the telecoms are not that consistent? You know, we had one morning in LA, I think, I think it was Sprint at the time, went offline for like three hours. And like, we're not going to run into something because the, the nav stack, the navigation doesn't need cellular connection. But, you know, the client's not happy. We're blind. Did we ever at that time, you know, think 2013, like we're going to need to put two telecoms on the machine? No, we didn't have that discussion. I mean, the other one was more probably softer, but like what's going to happen when we put these in public? Like, are people going to freak out? Is, you know, is society going to allow us, quote unquote, to do this? And we didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, we kind of feared the worst. And of course, we're wrong when, you know, parents drive their kids for four hours to go take pictures with the robots and girls are leaving lipstick on the machines, kissing them. And everyone wants to get a robot selfie like, OK, maybe we don't have it exactly perfect, but at least we're in the in the right quadrant. And I would I will say without having that field experience of, you know, nearly two million hours out in the field, like we frankly have forgotten more than most people know how to do this. And we can see you know, people proposing uh, or building prototypes in a garage or other startups and whatever, we we can take one look at it and go, (laughs) that's not going to work. Good luck. Um, But you kind of have to be out there and do it, which is a little bit counterintuitive from a product development standpoint, because you kind of want to do the, you know, scope it out. Here are the design requirements. Here's, you know, do the uh, kind of whole normal engineering process. And we kind of don't do that 
and um, it causes other complications. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know how else we would have done this. Working with any technology can be challenging, but imagine trying to build a machine capable of monitoring, detecting, and reporting security risks, and then introducing this technology to the public. I was curious to know how people have responded to seeing autonomous security robots at work. So you touched on a question that I had, um, you know, was the robot purposely designed not to look humanoid? So I'll make the, for we're on a podcast, I'll make the Star Wars reference, you know, the, the K5, um, which is, um, looks like your one of your flagship models is much less C-3PO and much more R2-D2 on steroids. Like if, if R2-D2 was over five feet tall, three feet wide and 400 pounds, right? Like, was that purposefully done so that you try to limit people's interaction of it? And like, what are people's reaction when they see it on site or do they usually have no reaction? Um, both actually. Uh, so a few comments there, Ed. I think one where it's not a military product. We're not in a you know theater of war on the battlefield. We're in society. So we have this really weird gray area mm-hmm. where I often say it needs to be large enough. And people are like, why is it so big? It's like, you don't know how a criminal operates. Like they're just going to take it, right? <laughs> <laughs> or take a run at it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so having that slightly physical intimidation, no different than putting a cop car in front of your home or your office will make that big difference. Right. But you also don't want, as I often say, scare grandma or scare the child. Right. And some of this is very subtle. If we paint all our robots, matte black have really screechy sounds and all the lights were emitting, you know, bright red, like, I don't, you know, we will probably wouldn't be in business, right? There's, no one wants that on their property. Right. So it was kind of trying to figure out how to be physically intimidating just enough right? without scaring someone. There is a novelty when we certainly deploy, but the good thing, and I think is once they're there a year or two, I mean, we've got clients that have renewed second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, um, you know, then the students, the doctors and nurses, the employees, the tenants or whatever, get used to it. Then it's like, Hey, do you stare at your fire alarm every day? Like, is that really something? Is that a thing? Right. Um, no. Uh, but you really, you know, another big lesson learned is, uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker, but you know, there is something called, you know, some etiquette and Southern manners and, and the like, and if you don't pop, <laughs> so they say, yeah. so they say, <laughs> and if you don't introduce yourself, when you're first there or before you get there, you're going to have problems. And that's a lot of folks, you know, don't seem to listen. Um, and, you know, some have had some really bad experiences with putting new technology out in the field without properly announcing or introducing yourself. Uh, and that's going to cause all kinds of problems. So everything that every fear that Hollywood has put into everyone is going to come to fruition. Um, if you don't explain why is this technology here? What does it do? And once you do that, and then people have their robot naming contest and, you know, uh, get emotionally attached to the machine, then then you're all good. But if you fail to do that step, like you're going to end up with a black eye. Yeah, I like, I like the PR aspect of it. I could totally, totally understand that. Um, so you talk about civilian reaction. What's law enforcement's reaction been to having these as, I'll say, colleagues out in the field? Well, let me do a little math problem for you before I answer that. Sure. Uh, so crime, 
has a $2 trillion negative economic impact on the U.S. every single year. And I can assert that the law enforcement security apparatus in our country does not work and is failing. Why? The number I just gave you, $2 trillion. I mean, seriously? Yeah. Uh, if it's that effective, it shouldn't be that, num- that number. So why is it that broken down? It's actually two reasons. Uh, the first reason, it's not maybe a popular thing to say, but I don't care. There's not enough police and there's not enough security guards to do the job. You cannot possibly. So there's a million guards, mm-hmm. plus or minus. There's about a million law enforcement professionals. That's two million humans. They're running 24-7. And remember, I told you, you can't triple shift a human, right? So now you need to divide the two million by four. So at any given time, you only have 500,000 people right. trying to secure 332 million Americans across 50 states with technology that's the technical equivalent of a number two pencil and a notepad. And then you wonder why this isn't working. Well, you've got no tools and you don't have enough people. Of course, it's not going to work. Um, and what's broken in our, I love my country, but what's broken here is one that's macro political, I guess, you know, the department of defense, we don't have this problem. There's one person in charge. There's an $800 billion budget. There's a huge military industrial complex to build the two plus million soldiers, whatever they need in a theater of war, anything you can imagine and can't imagine they can get built. It might cost a little bit too much. It might take too long. But the widget comes out the other side, right? You need a new jet fighter. You need a new, you know, ammunition, new tank. You can get it. Our officers and guards on our own soil don't have that luxury. The Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security have no federal jurisdiction over the 19,000 law enforcement agencies and 8,000 private security firms. There's no one in charge. There's no strategy. There's no innovation process. There's no risk capital. And there's not a you know bunch of Northrop Grumman's, Lockheed Martin's, and Raytheon's building these folks everything and anything that they would want. And that's the company that we are building. Which you know, Nightscope is an opportunity for us to build that thirty billion dollar company that kind of looks like a defense contractor, but instead is focused on homeland security and, and the Department of Justice. It's interesting you share those numbers. I'm actually encouraged that things aren't worse at this point when you lay it out like that, but I could totally see the argument uh, in favor. Um, I covered the, the the law, go to the end order segue now, like how, laws don't usually, you know, keep up with technology. No. Those of us in, in the uh, the IT space. Breaking don't. news. <laughs> I'm full of breaking news today. I'm telling you. But uh, what, what's the what's the legal pushback like when you go to introduce these into a, a new environment or, or is there any? None. We're 50 state legal. We've made presentations in, you know, at the federal level with I think it was the Ninth Circuit. Um, we've, uh, have law enforcement agencies as clients. We're almost done, not there yet, but almost done a, a two year nightmare mm-hmm. U.S. federal government cybersecurity review process. Um, I'm hoping by the end of the year, we'll have a, an ATO or an authority to operate. Um, our sponsor is the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, and so we hope to help the federal government who's also, by the way, lacking the tools that I spoke of earlier. Like you've got the Federal Protective Services trying to secure 10,000 federal buildings with 15,000 officers and guards, again, with a number two pencil and a notepad like that. Not acceptable. Um, You know, you think about, you know, how do you secure NASA? How do you secure the Social Security Administration? How do you secure the U.S. Postal Service, all the monuments and national museums? I mean, it's a massive, massive 
undertaking. And that's not to say anything of, you know, securing properly a military base and not having a a U.S. Marine stationed on a literally a, a patrol that a security guard should be doing at minus, you know, three degrees Fahrenheit at night doing what? Like that is not what he or she was trained to do. And we need to be more thoughtful in how we use technology and have the the machines do the monotonous and computationally heavy stuff in all kinds of weather conditions that humans don't necessarily need to be in and let the humans do the law, you know, the enforcement and the decision making. But we can't continue to grow our country this way. Like, do you think the founders of our country ever expected us to build a society where going to work, going to school or going to movie theater literally came with the risk of being shot or killed? Like, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, in, in terms of, of outcomes from, from putting these in the field, um, you, you must have one or two, you know, a- anecdotes from just things that either y- you've heard about a, a positive result or, or just said, wow, I never thought it would have, you know, <laughs> it would have had an outcome like that or, the, or a good story that you have from a positive outcome. Uh, yeah, I'll give you a couple of them. I mean, I think most people are reasonably bright and they understand that it's not like what's on TV. It, right. Most officers and guards are 95, 98% of the time. There's no drama going on, right? And so we're just getting started. And what I find fascinating is a few more than a few years ago, I was actually in New York, I think. Uh, I remember the phone call. My co-founder calls me up. And he's like, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what? We just helped a law enforcement agency issue an arrest warrant for a sexual predator. And I just... I almost bust out in tears because like, it's like, you're kidding me, right? Um, we've helped another law enforcement agency apprehend an armed gunman. Uh, we helped with a domestic um, violence uh, case. I mean, we have one client that was experiencing one to two criminal incidents a week, like assault, theft, stolen car every single week. And we put the machine there and everything literally went down to zero. And all the shenanigans stopped and they have renewed that contract now for the fifth year. So if everyone, anyone's going to assert that, you know, the technology can or cannot work, um, you know, clients don't renew stuff for three, four or five years if it's not effective. Right. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in the last few years of your, your business journey at Nightscope? Uh, the capital formation process in the United States of America to build a company is completely broken, inclusive of the governance strategy. I, I usually get people ticked off when I say this, but I, I don't care. <laughs> um, you know, I forgot the numbers, but it's easily well north of 100, 130 billion, if not more, uh, goes into startups every year. A few thousand venture capitalists decide to play God and, you know, place the money. And, you know, notionally, I, I'm sure this is slightly off, 80% of it goes into software. You know, 10% goes into biotech uh, and then 10% goes into quote unquote other. Is that really how the multi-trillion dollar economy around the world works? It's 80% software and, you know, 10% other and 10% biotech. I don't think that's how the world works. And it is a grueling, painful process for capital formation um, for a startup. And then it gets worse. Um Founders keep selling board seats to the highest bidder in a financing is highly inappropriate, right? If you're a publicly traded company, somebody buys 5% of your stock, you're having an emergency board meeting that night. You're calling the crisis communications people, and we're going to figure out what we're going to do with this 
uh, activist single shareholder. And you can figure out the acronym. Right. Right. Uh, you're in the private market in Silicon Valley. Someone buys 20% of your company, steals two board seats, and the CEO sends out a celebratory press release the next day. It's like, so let me get this straight. Those two cats are really going to vote the shares in accordance with proper governance rules, meaning not their preferred class, but they're going to vote for the best interests of the company. Right. Like, I've seen it firsthand, so this is not me speaking, you know, third hand. Um, and, you know, I did something either highly unpopular or very popular. Uh, so for eight years, I avoided selling any board seats to anyone. Um, so just before the public listing, I was still the sole director of the company uh, under extreme criticism, as you might imagine. But I believe founders should have the right to architect the brand, recruit the team, build the technology, sign the lease for the building. I don't understand why the founder doesn't have the right for her to architect the right board with the right demeanor, the right skill mix at the right time. And so that's exactly what I did. If you go to nightscope.com slash board, you can see an unbelievable board that we were able to assemble of six independent directors, um, 43% minority, uh, 85 plus percent female. And since I'm half Latin, half Asian, 100% diverse. Uh, would I have been able to do that um, right. if I had buckled under the pressure of, hey, I wrote you a $5 million check. I need a board seat. <laughs> it's like, okay, what do you know about law enforcement, physical security, hardware at scale, robot? Like, why are you getting a board seat again? One more time. <laughs> and, then, and then you get to the public markets and you go, Oh, great. Now NASDAQ and NYSC and some states are trying to pass regulations or laws to force CEOs to, quote unquote, do the right thing and get a properly balanced board. Like, it's just ridiculous. The whole process is broken. Why do you think people cave? Uh, you, no founder that's trying to raise money here in Silicon Valley would say what I just said. So, you know, VCs, they're... they're they th- most founders unfortunately think that's the only trough to raise money, so they're not going to go punch that person in the nose. And I, I, there's a time and place for VCs. Don't get me wrong, um, but you know if if you're a social media company and Mark Zuckerberg retired and had six of his lieutenants around and they wanted to write you a five million dollar check and take a board, he'd like just do the deal, like. <laughs> He's regardless if you're he's popular or not, like he could be really helpful to you. Right. So just do it. But that's not often the case. Right. Most of these VCs run around with a business model that says they have to be wrong nine times out of 10 is kind of how this works. Right. They need one blockbuster to make up for all the sins in their portfolio. And that's fine. You want to gamble that way. That's great. Um, But don't walk around with an attitude like you're right nine times out of 10. You know, I've never seen such unprofessional behavior in my entire professional career. And, you know, there's one or two VCs that, you know, have their act together. And I certainly don't wish to speak ill of, of them. But the, the rest of the lot, you know, uh, th- there are other ways to, to raise capital. And I would just encourage founders not to just focus on product market fit all day long. Y- you need to think through about company versus capital fit. What type of money do you need? 
to get what you want done um, and not just get steamrolled. You know, as hard as, as when I was researching this uh, podcast, as, as hard a task as you're, you know, getting these robots to perform, I'm really surprised about your answer to that question. And uh, it's kind of refreshing. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was painless. It was such an easy process. Everyone should do it. <laughs> Bill Santana Lee, chairman and CEO of Nightscope. Uh, for anyone that wants to know more about you and what Nightscope is up to, where do you prefer that they come find you? Uh, well, certainly go to nightscope.com to learn more. Uh, if you want to connect with me, probably best on, on LinkedIn. And if you put our ticker symbol KSCP in the request, I will know that you are probably listening in on, on this one. And uh, lastly, if you go to nightscope.com slash roadshow, we've got this crazy, uh, I call robot aquarium running around the country with a bunch of robots in it. So people can actually see them in, in real life and not just be listening in on a podcast or watching them on, on YouTube. Um, and the, the schedule's there. Um, and if you'd like to host uh, having the pod uh, show up in, in your town, there's also a, a little opportunity at the bottom there to, uh, to sign up for that as well. Awesome. Well, Bill, we really appreciate your time today. Really appreciate your candor. And, uh, you know, thanks very much. Sure. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. From self-driving cars to self-driving robots, humankind's relationship with technology is ever-evolving. And the science fiction stories of my childhood are looking more and more plausible. But instead of being intimidated by tales of man versus machine, we can look to organizations like Nightscope as beacons for a new wave of technological innovation, one that prioritizes society's need for safety and that protects the places and people we love most. Thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Every two weeks, we meet with the unsung heroes who are radically changing the way we live and work in order to tackle the major challenges facing transformational businesses. So tune in to our next episode in two weeks. You won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like button and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Brian Brusis, Christina Clark, and Tobin Dalrymple, with production assistance from Amanda Sheffer-Cavanaugh and Ryan Wetter.